0: Okay, so I know we've been plugging our tour constantly. Call slash tour to get all the dates. Detroit, Houston, Denver, Toronto, Austin, we're coming for all these places. But we wanted to give people in those cities and also people who live elsewhere a little taste of what the CYG live experience is like. Not to mention we're sitting on a few really great interviews from last fall's tour that we have been saving, just like squirreling away for a rainy day to share with you. And one of those interviews is with one of our favorite writers, Ijoma Oluo. There are a couple of dated references because this event happened right around Halloween. So you'll hear us talk about spooky season. But honestly, Halloween is kind of evergreen, right? Yeah, and please enjoy a little taste of our live show from Seattle in October of last year. And don't forget to get tickets for this year's tour at callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour.
1: This is Anne and Amina. We're calling from Guerneville. We met at a mutual friend's Gossip Girl viewing party in 2009, and it was love at first commercial. We laughed at all of each other's jokes, and we really wanted to be friends. But when we were leaving that night, we, d- we walked in opposite directions. Honestly, we became such close friends, but it foreshadowed a life of us living kind of far apart from each other and having to persevere and be like the bestie, bestie, besties anyway. <laughs> yeah, and now we are still really good friends. We work together and we travel together. We uh, we snack together. We snack together, and we can't wait to be friends for ten more years, at least, <laughs> at minimum. So, listen out for more voices of friendship throughout the show. And now, will you all please help me welcome the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, Anne Friedman and Aminatu So.
2: Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend,
0: a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere and in Seattle, Washington. I'm Amina Toussaint so. and I'm Ann Friedman. On tonight's agenda: Ted Cruz, Disney junkie, how we know Megyn Kelly only trick-or-treats with white people. <laughs> We will also have a conversation with one of our favorite writers, Ijoma Oluwo. Before we get started, there's a little thing that we want to do. Uh, In the past year or so, both of us have been to Australia. This is not like a we travel so much like follow yeah, us we didn't on go to <laughs> yeah we didn't go together it was it was kind of for work um, and we learned that um, before a lot of public events such as this one there they will often do an acknowledgement of country or a statement of country is what they call it um, and it's a way to pause and acknowledge the indigenous history of the land that that event is taking place on and so we are adapting this practice for our tour. <laughs>
2: So before we begin, we wish to acknowledge the custodians of this land, the Duwamish people. The Duwamish tribe, whose roots in Seattle stretch back for millennia, are not officially recognized by the federal government. They've long sought support from the city of Seattle in their 40-year effort to gain recognition. Because they remain unrecognized, they cannot receive the same benefits that recognized tribes do. Their presence is often obscured locally, too. The two totem poles that stand near the Pike Place Market over Highway 99 Viaduct, which were installed in 1984, did not originate in the Puget Sound area. Rather, they are from the native people of the northwest coast, from Vancouver Island to the southern edges of Alaska. Council member Deborah Juarez is leading the effort to have them removed. We acknowledge and respect the Duwamish people's continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of this city and this region. survey this audience. How many okay. people here are here with their bestie? Okay, okay. Um, how many people have known said bestie for at least five years? Okay, 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 okay. That's, you know, that's respectable bestie territory. New beginnings. Uh, Ten Ten years. Ten years. Hmm. Okay, the some college one. friends. Uh 15 years. Ooh, thinning out here. Okay. 20, 20. 25. 30? 30? Nobody? Okay. 35? Are you sisters? No, for real. Are you sisters? No? (gasps) That's amazing. Um, (laughs) 40 years? 35. Okay, we'll take it. That's amazing. Good for you. Mm. You know... No shade to the sisters. We love sister friends. But it's just, you know, like last night we had twins and they're like, we've known each other forever. We're like, duh.
0: They're like, they're like we shared a uterus. We were like That's born we in met. the same you stomach. Know.
2: It's cool.
0: <laughs> you know. Uh, did you all see this article in The Atlantic about Ted Cruz's wedding? I did not see it any Heidi Cruz fans in the audience <laughs>
2: <laughs> the Google alert for Heidi the, Cruz the Cruz who should actually run for office you know I'm like I don't like you but you seem more competent so
0: relative competence is not a qualification for office <laughs> yeah, in 2018 yeah, all, like,
2: the, all the evils men's wives should run
0: for office I was like complicate my understanding of this please oh my god Anyway, I found this article because my good friend Aminatu So sent it to me <laughs> with like a million exclamation points, um, and I'm just going to read a little part of it. At the wedding, Ted insisted they play, quote, A Whole New World, the popular Disney song at the end of the ceremony. Heidi didn't understand. They had a band, she told him, a violinist, no less. She's classy, yeah, yeah, you know, she really uh, Why on earth would they play a CD? Quote, because no one can do Aladdin, he said. (laughs) This is giving me chills, I agree with
2: Ted Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) Are you you the Zodiac Killer? (laughs) No, that's
0: his father. (laughs) Okay. She relented, and it became a theme of sorts. Or that's how she remembers it anyway. On a magic carpet ride. (laughs) Um, and we're still talking about this, even though that article was a while ago, because... Because it's uh, nutty! I mean, it's nutty. <laughs> it's very funny and nutty. I don't want to Disney-shame Ted Cruz, because I, I, I do think that people should be able to like whatever animated features they love. Um, Disney-Americans are people Disney- too, <laughs> Anne. <laughs> Walt well, Disney's America. Um, and, uh, but then I saw yesterday... Uh, our horrible Cheeto president, who has historically had a somewhat contentious relationship with Ted Cruz, um, decided that he likes him now. He said, quote, he's not lying, Ted, anymore. He's beautiful, Ted. <laughs> I call him Texas Ted. But beautiful Ted, just something about beautiful Ted and a whole new world really um, was really inspiring to us. And uh, we thought maybe Ted would appreciate a Disney-fied version of his newfound love from Trump. So um, we took it upon ourselves. (laughs) Anne makes all of the graphics in this family. Okay, so I have to interrupt for one second to explain. If you were sitting in the live audience at this point in the show, you would see on the big screen behind us these Photoshop composites that I made of Trump and Cruz together in scenes from classic Disney movies. So the first is Ariel and Flounder. So like Trump is Ariel and like Flounder's face has Ted Cruz on it from The Little Mermaid. Uh, Then is Beauty and the Beast. So it looks like they're dancing together, like spinning in a ballroom. And finally, as beautiful Ted would really appreciate, as aladdin and jasmine riding a magic carpet together i'm sorry that this is an audio product that you cannot experience my janky photoshop skills firsthand but you can imagine imagine as you listen to the dulcet tones of Gita's voice
2: please welcome the singer in the family (laughs) the
1: only singer in the family Look at this cruise, isn't he neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the ghoul, the ghoul who has everyone? Uh,
0: I don't know whether to say it gets worse or it gets better.
1: (laughs) It continues. Hail as old as time (laughs) Cruise as it can be Barely even friends Then somebody bends Full complicity (laughs) All
0: right, this one's for you, Heidi.
1: (laughs) A whole new world That's where we'll be, (laughs) a thrilling chase, a wondrous place, for Cruz and me.
0: (laughs) The beautiful, the talented, (laughs) Gina Delbach.
2: Which is your favorite of these Disney movies? I don't really know the answer to this. Oh, my
0: top fave? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I have to say that truly on the basis of Ursula alone, I have to say Little Mermaid. Fair, 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 fair. I could watch Poor Unfortunate Souls just that on like at feature length repeated. (laughs) Yeah. The part where she makes lipstick out of the little sea anemone. I love it. I just love it. What about you?
2: That's perfect. You know, I used to have a huge crush on Gaston. Um, (laughs) Oh, shocker! (laughs) Forever bisexual. Yeah, like early. Like I'm like, why are my parents letting me watch this uh, (laughs) (laughs) moment? But I have to say, like, you know, I'm an Aladdin girl. Oh. You, you, I, you know, and Ted. Me and Ted. I just, you know, classic. I always wanted the, like, jasmine long hair. Like, blue's my color, too, you know? So, <laughs> I, they don't make these cartoons like they used to.
0: Wow, okay. Sexist
2: uh, as ever. I'm, cl- <laughs> I'm, I'm,
0: <laughs> I'm like, we have to click to the next slide before you go too far. I know, right? <laughs> Into elderly, millennial, scary territory. Um, like, yeah
2: tell you this. I'm, like, perfectly cooked millennial. You're an old millennial. I'm the oldest millennial. You're an old-ish millennial. Really? 1985? Yes, I'm sorry to tell you. It's It's a good vintage, right? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's a good year. Okay, I want to talk about another thing that makes me furious, but I feel like I'm getting more excited about it. So, (laughs) Megan Kelly, Mm. who, like, spells her name with a Y the racist way. Don't trust her. Straight... There's, like, variations where you're, like, mmm, this is, you know, like, it's just, like, you know the name's gonna be a problem. And, and they're gonna have to, like, tell you they need to talk to a manager. But so, Megan, who for a long time worked at Fox News... And, you know, like, now works at NBC. She has a show that nobody watches at 9 a.m. except for me when I want to get angry. Uh,
0: It's like your wake-up call? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gets
2: paid, like, $70 million a year to, like, do nonsense. But here's the deal. So she had a couple of people on a panel, and she talked about how when she was young, it was totally okay to, like, wear blackface. Um, She's not 100 years old. P.S. Spoiler. Like... Right. Megyn Kelly is born in 1970 in Champaign, Illinois. I was like, ma'am, like, you were around in 1920. <laughs> uh, it's not okay. But she, like, made it seem, like, very chill. You know, she's like, because you truly, you get in trouble if you're a white person who puts on blackface at Halloween or a black person who puts on whiteface for Halloween. There is no such thing as whiteface. face. <laughs> Also, like, I usually do not like to speak for all black people, but I think I can speak for all black people <laughs> when I say that we do not have the time or the desire. So, you know, like, Megan Kelly says, back when I was a kid, that was okay as long as you were dressing up like a character. We've already said that this is, like, this is a fucking lie. Like, even in 19, mar, 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 whenever she was around, it was not cool to get shoe polish and put it on your face. Uh, You know, like, she tried to, like, defend the whole thing by talking about when Countess Luann dresses Diana Ross. You remember this, right? And um, what did the countess have to do? Swiftly apologize. It was, like, the first, like, real apology in housewife history because they're famous for the non-apology apology. apology, And this one was like, ooh, I'm messing with my own money. Better apologize. So, you know, there's there's been, like, much disgust to sense. Megan Kelly, like, you know, had to, she had to apologize to all of her colleagues because, you know, the NBC blacks all banded together. When Al Roker and Lester Holt, like, they hold their fire. <laughs> but when they come for you, you are going home. <laughs> and so, you know, like, she had to apologize to her colleagues. And then in the apology, she, like, teared up. I was like, are you doing white tears during the blackface apology? <laughs> Can't do that, ma'am. This is, uh, mm, this is not fly.
0: And cry you know. Megan Kelly would be a good Halloween costume if you're a white person <laughs> looking Ooh, for a Halloween costume. How do you make your face white? Do I need to explore? It? Well, you know what? I think I think for like, you know, an average, you know, white woman, maybe like a like a, a blunt like blonde wig and just like <laughs> just like buy one light, light shade lighter foundation on and it, cry on it. just cry a lot
2: so the thing that's like actually surprised me about this because yesterday I was full on rage today I'm like rage but like you know there's lulls and so <laughs> she like Megan Kelly has been dropped by CAA by her agency consequences mm-hmm. she is like uh, they're taking away her 9am slot that she's really bad at so hopefully they'll put her at like forever pm where nobody has to listen <laughs> to her nonsense but you know, like this, this is the same woman that on Fox News like gets violently upset when people say that Santa is not white, and so <laughs> the irony is not lost on me here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so good riddance to this ghoul. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye
0: forever. Ugh. I feel like by the time, if we talk about that again, like, maybe, maybe she'll be gone, gone. Maybe. Like, you know, this keeps progressing in a positive direction, shockingly, like. I know, I, like, you know, like, consequences. it's really weird. It's so weird. We're used to no consequences for shitty behavior. Okay. Let's listen to a voicemail. Shall we? Let's. No.
1: Hi, Call Your Girlfriend team. This is Emily from Seattle. Me and my bestie Tina actually met in line on our way into our freshman dorm at Christian College. Our moms actually got to talking and are both very extroverted, and me and my bestie are very introverted. And so while they were talking and gabbing and trying to force us to be friends, we kind of were rolling our eyes at them simultaneously and each other then we found out that we were actually next door neighbors in, in our dorm room and so from there we just kind of defaulted to being together and it's now been over ten years of knowing each other
0: oh, so cute introvert bestie meet cute I love, I love it, it. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, our interview on stage with Ijoma Oluo and even more reasons to come see us in Denver. Toronto, Detroit, Austin, and
2: Houston, Texas, baby.
0: And we're back with Ejoma in Seattle. Ejoma is a Seattle-based
2: writer, speaker, and internet yeller. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller so you want to talk about race, published this year by Seal Press. Her work focuses on issues of race and identity, feminism, mental health, social justice, and the arts. Please welcome Ijoma to the
0: stage. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have a side table for you. You might just have to.
3: No, and I don't have a real chair either. I know. What's, Listen. What's going on? Listen. Do you want to switch? Y'all knew I was coming, right? <laughs> we no, did. Just we did. I'm kidding. This is lovely. Our this elaborate like a writer. Stool. I'm on a campaign against stools on stages. Cheers. Everyone, I'm like, you saw the size of my ass and you, you brought a stool out. Why?
0: <laughs> we'll make now a pledge to you. If we ever do another show with you, no stools. Yeah, and there spread the word
3: be- to other people that you know. All your show friends. We'll tell the show people. No more stools. <laughs> your show friends. <laughs> your Hollywood friends. Yeah. Yeah. I love <laughs> exactly. that you think that
2: we get out of the house besides
0: <laughs> this. <laughs> Okay, well, you already heard us rant about Megyn Kelly. But we figured we would ask you (laughs) if you had any feelings about how it's possible that Megyn Kelly is, like, still out here talking like this about blackface.
3: I mean, I would just... It has got to be so amazing to be a white woman. Like, to be able to be, like... To mess up everything, to get everything wrong all the time. All the the time. And have that... And and still, just continuously coast by. Like to get being like a weird racist defender of the patriarchy wrong, and then to get being a pseudo faux liberal wrong, and you're like, and they're like, oh, the big consequence is maybe you'll be moved to a different time slot in your multi-million dollar career. I want that. Also magical tears. I mean, I get so many things wrong, and I don't make any money from that.
2: <laughs> I know. I am definitely trying to fail into $70 million right? a year. Timeless.
3: Fingers crossed. Tonight is <sighs> the start of that. I mean, that's really my retirement plan. It's just I'm hoping to screw enough things up to end up a millionaire. Mm-hmm.
2: You know what? Mm. Um, the next time the Mega Millions is at $1.6 billion, it's you and me. Well, I mean, I'm already, I'm already ahead because I'm not playing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one line that really stood out to me in your book is uh, when you said that as a black woman I'd love not to talk about race ever again. I do not enjoy it. It is not fun. Uh, One, amen. (laughs) And, you know, I think it's like pretty common when people always say like, oh, black people love to complain or like, you know, that lady's just playing the race card. And so, you know, like I'm thinking about all of this and I'm like, what motivates you to like get out of bed and keep like talking and writing about race even though, People don't
3: deserve it, and it's not fun to do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true. We don't deserve you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, you know, it's, I, I definitely don't do it for white people. Um, I do it mostly for myself, mm-hmm. because you still have to live that reality, and you either live that reality where you can say something, or you live it where you can't. Um, and... I am fortunate enough to be in a position where saying something isn't costing me this job because it's literally my job. And so I have to say something for all those who can't, who it will cost them their job or their safety or, you know, so many other opportunities in life. But also, I like to put things out there with the hope that maybe a person of color who is also sick of having this conversation can be like, hey, why don't you read that thing and leave me alone? And, <laughs> and I've loved seeing that. And, and that's honestly what keeps me going. I hear from a lot of people who say, I keep your, I keep your book on my cubicle, and then because I'm the only white person, black person in my office, and then when a white person comes up and asks me a question about race, I don't say anything. I just open up a chapter, <laughs> and I say, read that. <laughs> I'm and just gonna start just holding wonderful. it like a crucifix in yeah. front of people. When they come to I've me. I've learned too, uh, people have said that if you want your own seat on the subway or the bus, oh, yeah. that if you hold that book up while you're reading it, <laughs> it's either going to work perfectly or it will be the worst decision you ever made, depending on who gets on the bus.
0: I'm curious about how you, you know, for yourself as a human being out in the world, I'm not talking about, like, the practice of writing this book or maybe even being explicitly on book tour for it or having conversations like this where you know we're going to talk about the book, but, like, more just, like, living your life on the Internet and then also, like, as a human out in the world, um, where you draw the boundaries about... When you delve into conversation and when you're like, oh, actually, I'm off the clock right now. Like, I'm not going to get into this, even though that's kind of what I built a part of my career on.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm less generous now than I ever was. And, I, and, and it's not to say anyone w- was ever caught calling me generous before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's that generous yeah. race
2: lady. Yeah.
3: <laughs> like, <"Ooh."> <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I would say that, you know, one thing I've realized, and it's something I tell a lot of young people, especially because there's so much pressure for people of color to be like the people who carry, you know, like we have we a foot servants of wokeness. We're supposed to carry these, you know, emerging white grown babies through their <laughs> racial journeys. And you can't do that. There's too many white people here, <laughs> especially in Seattle. And... So I've learned that you know, what I, part of what I think often gets lost, even in talking about anti-racism, is the actual value of the people of color who are dealing with the system. And that also means the value of our time and our energies in this battle. We can't lose that in the battle. Part of the battle to end racism can't be also that Black women are going to kill themselves trying to lift this burden mm-hmm. with just because a white woman doesn't want to Google something. And Ooh. that, you know, we have to... <laughs>
0: We believe in Google here. Yeah, yeah. Google <laughs> yeah. is your friend. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and we have to we have to build that in. So I'm, I'm, you know, I, I look at every time I look at whether I'm gonna engage a conversation. It's sometimes I just want to, and, but if I want to, I mean, I'm sorry, that's not a good thing because usually I just want to like fuck with someone and I'm in a really bad mood, and it means I'm gonna <laughs> I'm not, I'm, there's gonna be no like. You're going to hear a truth, but you might not hear it the way you want to hear it. But for the most part, when I am going to have these hard conversations, I do it out of love. Either love for the people who are being impacted by this, or love for the person I'm talking to. Because it's never fun, it's never easy, I've never had one conversation that changed everything. It's It's a long, long process, and five minutes after you have it, there will be another white person standing in line who thinks they've got the most brilliant discussion starter ever, and it's literally the exact same thing that someone just said to you. And so I would say I would, love if, I would love if white people actually looked at this as their burden and looked at the way in which people of color engage with them in these conversations as an extreme generosity because we don't get to choose so many times. And mm-hmm. these conversations never really work in our favor. <laughs> and the truth is, is we have very little power to change that system. And so I would love it if, if, if white people woke up and actually felt the burden that we felt instead and felt like, oh, if I want this to change, I have to do something.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> 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 Where, like everybody wakes up and the white people are doing the race work. <laughs> yeah. Opposite
0: Jake, can't handle it. The Today um, Show, 9 a.m. hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right?
2: Well, you know, like one of the things that I love that you write about is how, um, you know, like not to use one bigotry to combat another. And so you write a lot about fat phobia and classism, um, you know, especially as like people use that kind of rhetoric a lot of times to combat something racist in some cases. And, you know, we also see people like body shaming a lot to attack people. And your work has really helped me think through a lot of that. And so I was wondering why, you know, like, if you could talk about, like, why it's so hard, especially for progressive people sometimes, not to regress into using these, like, really harmful tactics.
3: Yeah, I would say, you know, part of it is is that we spend our whole lives absorbing these messages. And so we have, you know, race, race is one of the most, you know, obvious defining factors in our society for how well people do but there are so many other oppressions out there and we aren't just as inundated. But I think also a lot of what happens to people when they see someone doing something abhorrent, you know, saying something racist, doing something racist, you can feel very powerless in this system. Mm-hmm. And so people think, what can I do to make them feel that sort of pain, that sort of harm? Mm-hmm. And all they can grasp is this huge library of the ways to be fatphobic or ableist or misogynistic, you know, all these other things. That's what jumps to mind because the truth is, is that there are a few other things that make you feel disempowered and unsafe and scared. And people think I'm going to give them a taste of my own men- of their own medicine. But what they're really doing is just perpetrating more oppression and, you know, more hatred. And it, It takes a while for people to stop and realize that you're saying saying something about how you value the people you are tossing in as bombs. You're throwing people's humanity at someone Mm -hmm. as a weapon. And you may think that you love black people, but if you decide to then make your comments about class or about disability, you are saying that I think that you are collateral damage and you are worth less because I can toss your humanity at this person I'm worth more the person being harmed is worth more and I will go ahead and use you and use your pain as a weapon against someone else and so I think that we have to look at what that says about you know the value systems that we've absorbed and how we're valuing the people harmed by that because so often I hear people say well it doesn't matter if if it works it works but it doesn't work, you know. If you want to make, if you're making fun of Trump and you're using body shaming things that are often used against fat people, used against trans people, and you're saying if it works, it works. It doesn't. It works for who? Mm. You know, it works for all the other people who are called these things. Works for all the other people who are harmed by this. Um, and you're saying basically that you're worth less. And you're collateral damage, and we cannot have any progressive movements that define entire groups of people as collateral damage. That's not what uh, progressive movements should be, and it's not what anti, it's certainly not what anti-oppression is. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, a few weeks ago, God, maybe it's months ago at this point. I lose track of time. We had. Um, Rachel Cargill and Robin D'Angelo on the podcast talking about white fragility and um, and white guilt being one of the kind of manifestations of that and um, and they, they talk a lot about how like, how unproductive an emotion guilt is when expressed by white people and I'm curious about um, I'm sure uh, you know in even just like the span of your book tour right like encountering almost like a repeating script that I would have to guess in particular, like the like white people who might come to your book event might be exhibiting. And I'm curious about how you, like what you see as a more productive um, frame than guilt in terms of like processing like structural white supremacy.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, I have no problem with guilt so long as they keep it away from me. I it. <laughs> it's, it's so funny for me, like when a white person walk up to me and be like, oh, I hate white people. We're the worst. I'm like, then why are you subjecting me to you right now? (laughs) It's not, I mean, I get it. I already get this. So you could, you could, you could spare me all of this whiteness right here. Um, I, I think that whatever motivates people to action is useful. Um, so you know, it's there that's and that's literally the limit of what guilt can do. I, I care not for how individual white people who've been participants in systems of white supremacy feel personally. Like i it doesn't make me feel better to know that they've cried about it. It doesn't make me feel worse to know that they've cried about it. I would love to know what they're doing about it. And mm-hmm. I will know by the impact they have. I, by the way, so I also really don't need any more emails with lists of the things you're doing. Because oh I'm not... People send here, you those? Oh, my goodness. I'm feeling do white they, embarrassment. Ever. <laughs> I get whole lists of everything everyone's doing. Like, literally, like, I, was, I thought of yelling at a black person, but I remembered your book. And I didn't do that. Like, I will literally, like, get this. And I'm like, um, okay, you know. um, Thanks. So, you know, I... I feel like, you know, what I need is action and the action will show. And and I need action, you know, if you want to get your kudos and your good job, you'll get that kudos and good job when the world reflects your actions. So you just keep doing and you can be frustrated along with the rest of us that the world isn't reflecting it yet. You just keep working at it. Um, And so, you know, I am not anti-guilt and I feel like there's also this really weird where we keep refocusing whiteness by saying, oh, don't feel guilty, don't feel, you know what, feel whatever Whatever gets you to vote differently, to get out in the streets, to start making better financial decisions, like, whatever it takes, you do that. Um, I, 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 I don't think that we need to worry honestly about how white people are doing in this whole anti-racism thing. <laughs> 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 like I'm I'm I, I, you know what if you're not okay you better learn to be okay cuz we are still at the very beginning stages. It really gets a lot worse than being called out on Twitter. It gets a lot worse. Um so if if you're, if you're guilt about how comfortable your life has been at the expense of people of color is what you imagine is the worst thing, buckle up, because (laughs) we literally haven't done anything to actually challenge the systems, these inherently violent systems of power. And if you actually want to tear it down, um, you feel that guilt and then have it motivate you to do something and just think, like, how much use am I right now? Mm. And, and, and think of that. And think of that before you start talking to a person of color about how you're feeling. <laughs> think, how useful, how useful <laughs> is this conversation right now? Um, and it, before you sit at home and share your post about how sad you are that you're a white person, think, how useful is this right now? Because what I really need right now is for white people to try to be of use. To people of color. Mm.
2: Man, this is really blowing my mind. The guilt thing. I'm going to start telling all my white friends, like, discuss amongst yourselves. Like, stop. I have no advice. Um, You know, I've been thinking a lot about the debate about um, who gets to call themselves a black public intellectual. And whenever that debate comes up, they, it always centers men. You know, like people will bring up Cornel West, people will bring up Ta-Nehisi Coates and, you know, like many other men. And that, it, you know, it's like those like good for those men. But I think that so many black women are writing amazing things right now. And I consider you to be a black public intellectual. So I was wondering, like, if you could tell us who... Um, you think, like, which other black women or maybe women of color your work is in conversation with right now?
3: Oh, man. I mean, first of all, oh, my God, I'm horrible at names. In the moment someone says name a person, Disney songs start going through my head. (laughs) (laughs) Heidi Cruz. (laughs) (laughs) Megan Kelly. I got you. (laughs) Um, You know, I would say that, like... um, I would say right now what's interesting is that I feel like black women, because we are getting... We get very little... There's very little spotlight on what we're doing. I think that we're all tackling so much, right? Because our our, our thought on race also has you know, gender, Mm -hmm. often has sexuality, often has class, so many issues where black women find themselves at the forefront of these things. Um, And so, you know, I would say, like, the people that I end up talking to a lot, um, I end up talking to Feminista Jones, I end up talking to Sam Irby, who, while for many people her memoirs may not seem like they're at the forefront of issues of race, like, talking, you know, really about what it's like to be a poor, fat, queer black person with health issues, um, in an absolutely brilliant way, I think is absolutely revolutionary. Um, you know, and so I find that, you know, like, um, I find, you know, I have a lot of these different conversations, um, and we're all kind of checking in with each other and we're all contributing something slightly different to, these conversations and I think we have a little bit of freedom, that freedom of erasure at times where people aren't suddenly pitting us against each other. I mean, you know. <laughs> like, let's yeah. slow we're down. Gonna, we're going to let a little of that slide. But, um, you know, that we, we get to try out different aspects of who we are and how we, how we fill in the world. I think that it's hilarious. You know, and Michelle Alexander, of course, I, I used a lot of her work in my book um, and, you know, Bell Hooks. I mean, there's so many people that I read through and I agree with parts of, disagree with parts of, and I feel like because we have had these little spaces to kind of explore, and there is less at risk, um, sometimes ego comes into it, but a lot less. It's always kind of embarrassing to watch, like, these dudes try to fight it out, like like we have the Highlander of black intellectualism, and... (laughs) There can only be one. Yeah. <laughs> especially when there's so many shitty white dudes out there. Like <laughs> shitty white dudes. There are um, so many sold more than out book yeah. tours. Look at Jordan Pearson. That dude That no, dude can barely string together is a clean sentence. Your room. He cannot string together a sentence. And no one's going, oh, well, Jordan Peterson exists, you know, can this other white dude exist at the same time? <laughs> um, we seem to have limitless capacity for mediocre white dudes, and yet we seem to be pitting every brilliant black man against each other, and then every black woman is kind of, the only, the only freedom we have is the fact that no one knows we exist. Um, and it's, it's always kind of embarrassing when we play into that and when we get caught up in that. And when I see people who I respect and admire get caught up in that and really do believe that they have to shout someone down or that they have to be caught publicly trying to insult no. another black person, um, it's not okay to me and it's sad. But at the same time, I know who to blame. And honestly, it's, it's not going to be Coates or West, even though I would love to sit. West down and have a conversation about some decisions he's been making. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I know who's to blame. It's not him. Yeah. Mm. right? And it's, it's everyone who's clicking on the articles and going, what do you believe? Do you, who do you agree with? What, what, what do you mean? Why can't you mm. take up the parts that you agree with? Why can't you look at people who have very different roles in, diag- in diagnosing and working towards solutions in this incredibly vast problem that, that is white supremacy in America? And and instead of saying, you know, all of the rewards... This is, this is a problem we should be pouring billions of dollars into, in all honesty. And part of it is scarcity of resource, right? Anything else that killed as many people as white supremacy kills, we would be putting all of our money into. But we don't even have... You know, we're shutting down ethnic studies departments left and right, right? We're studying... The, you know, we are... And then we're making the few authors and writers, like, compete for, you know whatever tiny bit of stage time and audience they can get and, and then black women are expected to still continue to do the work for you know, I'm fortunate enough I can pay my bills doing what I do but there are better thinkers than me who are no longer writing because they couldn't mm-hmm. and I think that there's something very wrong with that and I, and I would love to see people look, you know, with their money, as long as we live in a capitalist system, um, look for who isn't being heard, and instead of being dismayed and looking at these debates and thinking which side you're going to be on, are you going to be on west, are you going to be on coast, instead say, where can I put my money into the people who are still working while all this bickering is going on, um, and put it there, and put as much of it there as you can.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: I, so we've been playing these voicemails about how people met their best friend or one of them. I'm just wondering, you can say no if nothing leaps to mind, but I'm wondering if you have a story about how you met someone who's been really, whose friendship has been really important and meaningful in your life.
3: Well, I mean, I didn't go to Christian school. Oh! <laughs> how did you make so. any friends? How did you meet anybody? Yeah, I have no friends. Um, <laughs> I would say I have a, I have a close friend, um, Lindsay, who lives in San Francisco, and we met because we were going to go to a protest together, and we had just met at a party, like she used to work at the company I was working at at the time, but we hadn't worked there at the same time, but she had some friends who worked there before me, we met at a party, hadn't really talked at all, but then I guess she had seen from Facebook that I might be someone who would want to go to an Occupy protest.
2: Strong brand. So, yeah.
3: yeah. <laughs> right? Um, you can see there the, the makings of a uh, writer on important issues. So she was like, well, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, wait, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, sure. So after work, we went to find it. but And I'm in my work clothes trying to find this Occupy Protest um, to completely overdressed. my feet hurt. And we couldn't find it. <laughs> around for like two hours we couldn't find the protests, and so they were like do you want to go get a beer and we're like sure (laughs) and we've been friends ever since I love that (laughs) I love that
2: (laughs) that's incredible okay I'm going to ask you the the hardest question that we ask on CYG live Many gladiators have come and failed this test. The so, mighty have fallen. Whew. You know, the mighty have fallen. Um, so you got a lot to live up to here.
3: Um, or nothing to live up to, listen. honestly. Good if point. everyone's failed it, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm safe. Are you ready? Can Do I you want more wine? More wine? Yeah. yeah, let's give you some more wine.
2: <laughs> let's kill this bottle. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, this wine is good.
3: Okay. Yeah, I mean, someone definitely went to Safeway. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> <A> Listen. <little slam.
2: laughs> um, love a grocery store one. <laughs> um, what are your go-to snacks? Um, you can take a minute.
3: All right. <laughs> People want to be inspired. So right now I'm really into almonds, but like in, in a really annoying way where I get a craving for a specific almond and then I can't find... And so like my son came home, my 17-year-old, and was like, Mom, I'm hungry. And I was like, Oh, would you like some um, dry roasted almonds? And then I accidentally handed him the, the, the bag of plain non salted almonds <laughs> and he was like gross these taste like paper and then I was like oh wait sorry those aren't the salted ones and so then I grabbed another these are like three pound bags too and so I grabbed like a three pound bag of the chocolate ones and he was like why are these brown and I was like oh those are the chocolate almonds no here's the dry and he was like mom why do you have 15 pounds of almonds? <laughs> you're like an almond prepper. Right by your bed, and like to make it worse, I'm like sitting on my bed typing, and he was like, "Why? Why is your bed covered in almonds?" Uh, so I'm really into almonds. Um, if no one's home, I'm really into cheese because I'm lactose intolerant, so I just have to make sure that no one's around. So, those are my primary snacks right now almonds and cheese. I'm basically, you know, I'm either always pooping or never pooping, (laughs) depending on the day.
2: (laughs) A queen. (laughs) Thank you.
0: 10 out of 10. Great answer.
3: (laughs) Um, Where can people find your work? Oh, well, um, you can buy my book anywhere that cool books are sold. (laughs) And usually, if you follow me on Twitter and you can hang with all of the selfies and me complaining about random things that my children do, um, you will also. Your makeup is
2: so good. Isn't
3: it, though? So good the makeup selfies are my fave <laughs> I love them and occasionally people try to get snippy about it but what, you know what's funny is actually I had a speaking engagement in New York last year and we're talking about race and feminism and then I get down and a woman walks up to me and she goes I was following you for the makeup <laughs> she said I, I didn't know you were a writer <laughs> That's the best. Isn't it, though? I mean, I I was like, thank you. I Um, And But if you follow me on social media, I share everything I write there. Right now, I am still touring for the book and making a movie and working on my next book, so I'm not writing as frequently. But if you want to know what I'm thinking at any point in time, I tweet from anywhere, from the bathroom, which we've established. I spend a lot of time there. Um, So if you ever want to keep up with my day, find me on social media.
2: Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining
0: us. We'll see you on the internet. And if you're lucky enough to be in one of the five cities we're headed to this fall, IRL soon.
2: You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, yrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Canisius Need. We're on Instagram and Twitter at CallYRGF, where Sophie Carter-Kahn does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.